joy to be together. We're continuing today in our uh, study of the book of James. Study of the book of James, and today we're now arriving at the second chapter of that great letter. And so let's bow our heads together and pray and ask for God's help. God, for all the excitement of being together, for the newness for all of us to be in this space, worshiping together, for some at home, following a live stream, a lot of new things, exciting things. Pray that what's most uh, exciting and stirring to us is now the opportunity to hear from the Word of God. So we ask that you would come, pour out your Holy Spirit upon this time, make your Word clear and alive. Open up our hearts, our lives, that we would be changed by you. Oh God, lift up your Son, Jesus, that we would worship him and become more like him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Kids have a keen sense of justice, don't they? Don't you? They're just born with it. A child sees their sibling, their brother or sister, or a classmate get something that they really want, what do they immediately say? That's not fair. <laughs> Pretty sure I heard that even just last night for dinner. <laughs> when I was young, my, my childhood best friend Wesley and I, we had a different but related word of protest that we would exercise very often. We use it all the time. If one of our sisters got a scoop of ice cream before we did, or if a classmate got to do a fun activity first, we'd cry out in a sing-songy voice, favoritism, favoritism, <laughs> making sure the adult in the room knew about the injustice that was at hand. Of course, most of the time, we weren't really wrong in any way, we just wanted ice cream. But even at an early age, we had learned that it wasn't right to play favorites. In this morning's passage of scripture, James addresses the problem of favoritism. And he examines it not as a petty dispute among children, but rather as a common problem in the church and in our hearts. And he teaches us a few things about favoritism. What is it? What's wrong with it? How can we overcome it? And so let's just go ahead and dive in and take a look at how James answers each of these questions. Three questions. First, what is it? Twice, James uses this word favoritism. You see it in verse 1, verse 9. Other translations use the word partiality, a little bigger word. In verse 3, he uses the expression, show special attention. And in verse 5, the expression, discriminate against, like, among yourselves. Now, ask any dictionary, and favoritism or partiality is commonly defined as giving unfair or preferential treatment to one person or group, usually at the expense of others. But James seems to have here something even more specific in mind. He uses an ancient word that literally means 
face. It gets at the way that we sometimes treat people differently based on their face, their outward appearance. The Bible recognizes different forms of this partiality, of course. Unjust preferential treatment based on outward appearances grounded on differences in physical beauty. Grounded in ethnicity or culture. Grounded in gender or other visible attributes. And we need to learn to be aware of all of these tendencies, all of these expressions of partiality. But James in this passage applies this lesson specifically to favoritism based on differences in socioeconomic paths. The way that we treat people differently based on indicators of relative wealth. In verses 2 to 4, James offers a practical scenario, an example of a favoritism he has in mind. He writes, suppose a man comes into your meeting. He's probably talking about a worship service like ours right here. He's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and, and say, uh, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James is talking about the tendency that I think we all have if we're honest. To show special attention to those who appear more well-off, giving them the best seats in the house, and the corresponding tendency to treat with contempt, or even just dismissal, those who appear to be of more modest means. See, immediately we're invited, we're challenged, to acknowledge first how quickly, how quickly, even how subconsciously, we size people up based upon their appearance. How almost instinctively we look out and then categorize people demographically, rather than simply seeing them as people to be loved. And if we dare, as we open up our own personal lives to be examined by this passage, this word from God raises for us a few questions. Questions like this. Who do you tend to reserve the good seats for? In the church? In your home? In your workplace? On your phone? Who do you reserve the good seats for? Who gets first dibs on your personal time, resources, energy? And who gets the leftovers? Uh, you know, proverbial seat on the floor in your lives. But what are the subtle signals or, or behavior patterns in our church gatherings, or in your families, or in your personal life that become invisible? welcome signs to some and invisible keep out signs to others to the people around us 
And in our city, who is it exactly that gets the best public parks, the best schools, the best stores? Why is that? Will we let this passage examine us today. Most everyone today would agree that the example that James presents, preferential treatment based on social class, we agree that it's wrong. I mean, at the very least, it's impolite. We agree to that at least, which is why we do it in our heads and we just pretend not to show it. It's at least impolite. It certainly looks unfair, wouldn't you agree? But James goes much further than that. He calls favoritism a sin. And those who practice it, transgressors of God's moral law. Verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. We're told in verse 8, partiality violates what the Bible calls the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And someone says, this just seems kind of trivial. It's not that big of a deal, this little sin, right? And James says, no, wrong. In verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. It doesn't mean that sin is equally evil in every way, but it does mean that every sin, even the sin of favoritism, proves that we deserve God's judgment. And if we actually dare to respect the ugliness of hearts in these acts of partiality, I think we would begin to agree with God's assessment. We deserve God's judgment. It's among the most insidious, unloving things that we do in the human heart, the way that we look out, categorizing people, demeaning them based upon their outward appearance, based upon what's in their pockets, for goodness sakes. Here's a call, brothers and sisters. But why such strong language? What is it about this partiality that makes it so simple? What's wrong with it? Our second question. Our second point. What's wrong with it? Throughout this passage, James lists a number of things. Three, in fact. We'll run through these quickly. First, the problem here is that favoritism turns us into imposter judges. Verse 4, James says, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When we show favoritism to wealthier people or neglect or demean less wealthy people, we are acting as if we are the rightful judges of people's worth or value. And really, it's the height of arrogance. As we already saw, James speaks of God's judgment of our sin in verses 9 through 13. You see, God is actually the rightful judge of the universe, but we think that we can act in this place, deciding who's valuable and who's not, deciding who's worth our time and who's not, deciding who's worth our attention and who's not. We think we can issue verdicts about people's value. No. God has crowned every human being with his glory. No matter their economic circumstances, no matter their outward appearance, favoritism, my favoritism, turns me into an imposter 
James is reminding this ancient Christian community that oftentimes it's been the rich who's been exploiting them, unjustly suing them, even blaspheming God's name. In other words, you're treating them so well, preferentially, but they haven't exactly proven to be your friend or benefactor. And the reason why James appears to be highlighting this is because in the first paragraph, they're giving special attention to the person wearing the whole ring, fine clothes, giving him the best seat in the house with the hopes that he'll do something for them in return. See, more often than we want to admit, more often than we may be aware, we offer preferential treatment to those who appear wealthier or who appear more important by world standards because we're motivated by the pursuit of selfish gain. That gain might simply be comfort because maybe you feel it's a lot easier just to talk to them than to that other person. Or we might like the feeling of talking to them or them talking to us, them being near to us, pops up my own sense of self-worth, just the proximity to wealth or importance. Or I might be more interested in my own advancement. You know, always looking for the next person to network with. A big thing in D.C. Do you see all this operating in our hearts? As a way in which this favoritism can be motivated by selfish gain. It can be a contradiction against God's attitude and assessment of those of lower estate. The way in which favoritism turns us into imposter judges. But dear friends, what's our way out? Our final question, how can we overcome this sin of partiality? And the answer that James gives us is to remember the story of our faith. See, James 1 can actually be translated to read, My brothers and sisters, as you hold the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. See, he's pointing out that favoritism is a direct contradiction of our faith in Christ. It's inconsistent, and that also means that our faith in Christ is the fuel that enables us to overcome this sinful tendency of discriminating, of separating, of subjugating. Notice how James describes Jesus as glorious. The Lord of glory. He's reminding us of the story of the gospel. It's a story we hear about in Philippians chapter 2. About how the Son of God finished, but rather he gave it all up and made himself poor. Lived in filthy old clothes. And the King of glory humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, dying the death that we should have died for the forgiveness of our sins, rescuing us from our sins, bringing us into his family and promising to heal our broken world. You see, friends, when we dismiss the poor and favor the rich, we deny the gospel itself. But when we Look 
narrative of the world. That worth and value can be found in the low place. That it's love that compels us from a life that's driven by social ambition. Always and ever climbing. Wanting to hop only at the top. When we remember that the King of Glory came down because of love, in order to save us as a kid, then we begin to look out and see our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, those around us, with a different lens, understanding that all people stand on equal footing mm -hmm. as human beings, as bearers of God's image. All people stand on equal footing as sinners, all of us in need of saving. Mm -hmm. And all people stand at the foot of the cross as people loved and redeemed by sheer grace alone. When we believe in the reality of God's grace, when grace changes our hearts, that is when we begin to love differently. That is when we are drawn to people differently. When we plug back into the grace of God, we begin to love our neighbor without partiality. Because friends, what the gospel does is it teaches us how to see people as God sees them. See, this is more than just a challenge to change a little bit of how you might show favoritism once in a while. This is an invitation to completely reimagine the grounds of human work. What you believe makes a person worth engaging with. We've got to admit there's a lot of our hearts to undo, things that are more informed by the culture of our world than it is by the word of God. Because we live in a sick world that measures people work, people's work by their possessions and by their perceived productivity. And too often the church itself has bought into the lie. But see, the story of Christ trains our eyes to see the glory of loneliness. And it teaches us to relate to one another with empathy and care, not competition, and not simply for the purpose of selfish gain. To see each other, for goodness sakes, as a human being, That's right. for one. Yes. But I've heard a story, a bit of a sad story, of Shakari Richardson, a, a wonderful track and field athlete, one of the hopes of the American Olympic track and field team, uh, who showed up on the world scene over the last couple of years and busted through with a fine performance just last, last week. Uh, but because of an unfortunate positive drug test and disqualified from the 100 meter event in the upcoming Olympics, and she's spoken very honestly about her needs and weakness related to the passing of her mother and the mistake that she made. But one thing that she said I thought was really Powerful and important worth hearing. When asked about what was going on in her mind and heart, and when responding and asking the public not to judge her too harshly 
So we're talking about more than, than, than just a tepid notion of equality that has no power to change our hearts. See, the opposite of partiality is not non-discrimination. The opposite of partiality is radically inclusive belonging in Christ. The security that we receive from him and give to one another. And it comes from the gift of being marked out by the name of Christ. The Lord of glory. Who laid it all down. Who took the low place and gave that low seat. A new distinction is being a seat of honor. And that because of Jesus, we can come to see that true glory is found in serving. True glory is found in lowliness. So you're not afraid to love anybody no matter where they are. High or anything in between. So we turn our gaze towards Jesus. Turn our gaze towards Jesus. Who alone gives us power to overcome this sin of favoritism. But his invitation is not just to mere change. And his invitation isn't just to repentance for our sin, though he invites that. Go there. And it's not just to the forgiveness of our sins. His invitation is for us to be side by side in that low place together. Which is, if we understand the good news of that place, Nothing less than the place of glory. Jesus, bring us there. And help us to see you there. And mold our relationships around this vision of who you are. Your love. Your humility. Your downward mobility. Your grace. We pray this in Christ's name.